All right, everybody, let's go ahead and make our way to our seats, and we will begin our Sunday School Hour teaching time. Let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 44, Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. And the Lord, in this chapter, has been dealing uh, with his people, comparing himself with idols. He's invited the people of God to think about how idols are made and what they say about the God that they supposedly represent and what they say about the worshiper. He points out the absurdity of worshiping idols. And the effect of an idol, the effect of worshiping an idol, is that you hold the God that you created rather than the God who created you holding you. Okay? And that's actually the contrast that Isaiah is really trying to set up here because he's about to make that very point especially as it relates to what's going to happen in these people's lives. Okay, Let's do this real quick. Before we read, I'm going to give a little pop quiz, and let's remind ourselves of the history of what's going on. That's, it's going to play prominently into this chapter. Okay, And so just so we, sometimes it's best uh, to have to put it in your own words. And so think through what we've learned so far, and somebody... Somebody give uh, a bird's eye view of the history that we've been learning so far, and I'm sure you'll get most of it, but I'll say, okay, can somebody add something to that, and off we go, okay? Somebody give me a bird's eye view historically what's happening in this time frame. Okay, Derek says Israel is disobedient. Is that true? Yes, we're off to a great start. <laughs> okay, what else? Yes, and judgment, it looks like Assyria might be the one who conquers them. But what does God say about Assyria? He says, don't worry about them. In fact, earlier in the book of Isaiah, even though Assyria had camped right in front of Jerusalem, God says they won't even shoot a bow. They won't even shoot an arrow into the city. And given the flight of ancient arrows, you get pretty close. And so here they're looking at the Assyrian army um, up close and personal. They can smell them. They can see them. They can hear their conversations. And God says, I don't want you to worry. They'll get that far and no closer. And sure enough, God sent them home. But what else has God told them? What else has God told them? Yeah, you're safe for now, but but you're going to be judged. By whom? By Babylon. Babylon. Now, there's one more important piece of this puzzle that we're going to discover today. God says, I'm going to judge you by Babylon. Babylon is going to carry you off. But what's going to happen then? Yeah. 
Yeah, and we find that out from the book of Jeremiah, that it's going to be 70 years. Isaiah doesn't give that exact time. But what does he do that kind of places it historically? He says, I'm going to return you. But then he gives an, what does he do? He, he gives an indication of the history of it. Yeah. A near deliverer and a future deliverer. That's right. The near deliverer has a name. So we've arrived at that name today. Let's go down chapter 44. Let's go down to the end of the chapter to verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundations shall be laid. So here, God says that there's a world ruler coming by the name of Cyrus, and though he will be called by his peers the king of kings, he's actually my underling. He's my servant. He's my shepherd. I'm going to raise him up just so he can return my people to Jerusalem from the Babylonian captivity that you've been underneath of. Now, how many years in advance was Isaiah predicting this role that Cyrus would have? I, I'm not asking for an exact number because we don't know the exact number, but give me the, give me the neighborhood. That's right, Ralph, 150 years. Yes. See what happens when you write in your Bible? You, you look like the you, you you become the A student. You know this is good. That's good. So uh, I hear pins clicking. That's good. All right. 150 years out. That would be like just just for example. That would be like imagine at the Gettysburg Address. Okay. Abraham Lincoln is addressing uh, the the Northern nation really after this great battle. The I think that battle was the bloodiest, it was a three-day battle, and one of the days was the bloodiest day in American history. Okay, I believe that's what it was, before or since. Imagine, and, and during the Gettysburg Address, um, President Lincoln, um, I'm trying to get my history right, offered the Emancipation Proclamation. He freed all the Southern slaves. Imagine in the middle of that Emancipation Proclamation, he said, and oh, by the way, so thorough will this emancipation be that an African-American president will arise by the name of Barack Obama. That's about the same level of prediction. Nobody in the American South and the American North would have predicted that an American, that a black person would ever be president. They just couldn't foresee that. In fact, it, it was an open question of whether the North would even win the war. It wasn't certain yet. Imagine Abraham Lincoln. He didn't do this, but imagine him predicting the rise of Ob Barack Obama by name 150 years out. You would say, whoa. Wouldn't that get your attention? Well, that's what Isaiah does here. He predicts the rise of Cyrus 150 years out. 
Now, I want to take a little time. I, I have some points that we're going to make as we work through this. Let, let's read this first, actually. Let's, let's begin reading in verse 21 of chapter 44, and then we're going to talk about this a little bit. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. Remember the, the contrast? The pagan idolaters form their own gods, but God says, I form you. Okay? And because I form you, I'm going to keep you. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I've redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified. I want you to notice very quickly there, do you see these verbs? Look back here at these verbs. Okay, the Lord formed you. The Lord blotted out. Sing, O heavens, break forth into singing. For the Lord has redeemed and the Lord will be glorified. Other than that very last verb, what are the tenses? What are all the tenses? Past tense. He's saying them past tense. And how do you know, how do you know that God actually did these things that you can't see? Because he's going to do something you can't see yet. And when he pulls that off, you will know that all the things he said he's already done are done, and all the things he promises are as good as done. Let's keep reading. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. That, by the way, is an important phrase, which we'll cover in just a minute. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation will be laid. As I said before, this prediction is a solid 150 years out in the future. As Isaiah was writing these words, of course, Cyrus was not even yet, his father had not yet even been born. But his grandfather was starting to make a little noise in the town called Persa. And this is where we get the word Persia from. He was raising up a city called Persa. He was a good warrior, and he had a son. His son managed to uh, grow the kingdom even further. At this time, Babylon was um, also a growing power. Babylon was growing and beginning to supersede Assyria. Babylon was growing, and, and Babylon's attention was all directed to the south. They were paying attention to the Assyrians, which were off to kind of the southwest, and to Egypt, which was due south. What they were not paying attention to was this kingdom north of them called Persa, Media, Ecbatania. These names are going to mean something in a minute. So while Babylon was growing into a war machine, 
the kernels were, or the seeds were being planted up above them, and they were aware of it, but not quite aware of the power that these northern tribes would harness in just a few years. So, like I said, Cyrus's dad expanded Persa and Ecbatania. When he died, he cut the kingdom in half, gave Persa to Cyrus, gave Ecbatania to Cyrus's brother, and then out on the far west, the northwest, all the way over in what is modern-day Turkey, was a nation uh, called uh, Media. Uh, and and the, the ruler of this was the man named Croesus. How many of you from world history remember Croesus? Croesus was known at the time as the wealthiest man in the history of the world. And he may well have been. He was wealthy in gold, he was wealthy in crops, he was wealthy in soldiers, he, he was just wealthy. He, he was right there, uh, he, he's over there in Turkey, where uh, up by the Mediterranean Sea, where you've just got a tiny little jump over the sea. In fact, you can even bridge it over to get into Europe and Athens. Uh, Greece was growing, and Greece had a navy, and they were doing all this business, and Croesus was growing into Mr. Moneybags. Well, Cyrus, he didn't like his brother. So one day he decided to overthrow his grandfather's reign and go to war against his brother, who was the ruler of Ecbatania. Now keep in mind, the whole time, Babylon's down here in the south doing their thing unaware of what, or incapable, rather, of what Cyrus could potentially do. Cyrus was a very shrewd man. In fact, it's funny, I, I read a historian, or I listened to a historian, rather, who puts it this way. He calls it, Ben's listened to the same historian, he could probably tell me what he calls it. He, he calls it the, the, um, the, uh, the lottery of the divine right of kings, okay? And when you have these, these, these kingships that get handed down through the generations, you don't, always, you don't get to pick who your king is, and it's not a meritocracy. The best guy doesn't rise up. He just happens to be the king's kid. And sometimes you get a really good one, and sometimes you get, um, you know, one who's not so good. <laughs> and as the lottery would have it, Cyrus was a great one, and his brother of Ecbatania was not the brightest light in the room, okay? So Cyrus begins raising his army, raising his army, and goes to war against his brother in Ecbatania. Ecbatania had a bigger army and wealthier, a wealthier nation. But Cyrus had sent some spies in ahead of time and had done some dealing. And they convinced the entire army of Ecbatania to double-cross their king. They took out their king and came over to Cyrus. And now Cyrus 
is the ruler of Persa and Ecbatania. But Cyrus wasn't content with that. He looked across the way there to Mr. Moneybag's Croesus. Okay? He marched his whole army west and met Croesus. Croesus was no slouch militarily, and Cyrus and his army and Croesus fought to a draw. Croesus did what all kings did at the time. When winter came, he just went home. But you see, he hadn't dealt with Cyrus. And Cyrus is like, look, it's cold here, it's cold there. We're here to fight. Let's fight. So he followed Croesus home and surrounded the Median capital. It was called Media, right there on the coast. And surrounded the city for 14 days. Croesus and Cyrus had a meeting. They're like, look, Croesus, Mr. Moneybags, is like, look, I'm rich. <laughs> and Cyrus is like, yeah, but I can fight. And Croesus is like, why don't we come to an amicable agreement here? You stop fighting and I'll give you my money. And Cyrus said, sounds like a great deal to me. And so Cyrus became the rightful ruler of Media. Hence, when you read the Bible, you read about the Medo-Persian Empire. And Croesus became Cyrus's number two, his chief advisor. And Croesus got to kind of stay where he was and make all his money and he paid Cyrus and the two armies, the Medo-Persian army and Cyrus's army, combined together to form the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay? I have a point in telling you all of this. Okay? Well, do you remember where, what Babylon was doing at the time? Where, where are they looking? They're looking south. They're looking at Egypt they're looking in their little neck of the woods. In fact, the Babylonian ruler at the time was a man named Nabonidus, and he had a son named Belteshazzar. Nabonidus saw the formation of this Medo-Persian empire, and he said, we got to go get a little help. So historians debate this. Did he want help? Or did he want to skedaddle before Cyrus showed up with his giant, well-funded army? Okay? So, you remember when we read here? Look, it says, Who says to the deep, be dry? I will dry up the rivers. Cyrus took his well-funded, Medo-Persian empire, his huge army, and he marched south to Nineveh. Nineveh, Capital, the capital of Babylon, had a huge fortress city, big walls, considered impregnable. They'd built the walls just over the top of two main rivers. The rivers flow through the center of the city today. That was their water source, and the city was considered impregnable. But remember, Cyrus was smart. Cyrus was well-funded. 
And Cyrus was very good at thinking outside the box. He was never a man to, to think, oh, well, it can only be one way. So what did Cyrus do? He had his engineers divert the two rivers. Next thing you know, the rivers are gone. There's two huge holes in the city wall, which they probably could have plugged up with people and barricades and so forth. But what's the major problem now? There's no water. There's no water. Well, Belshazzar, he wasn't the brightest light in the room either. And he had alienated his people. And after Cyrus had dried up the rivers, while Belshazzar was having a giant party, totally oblivious to what was going on outside of him, the regular folk of Nineveh had been talking with Cyrus and his spies. And one night, in the middle of October, they literally opened the door. And Cyrus's army came marching in, and there they took over Babylon. Pretty amazing, huh? Now, why did I tell you this long story about Cyrus and his rise to power? Who could have predicted these events? How many of you got lost in the details of what I was describing? <laughs> Ecbatania, Persa, Croesus, Babylon, drying up rivers. Who, who could have predicted that unorthodox, surprising rise to power? What's more is this. There was an evolution in the way conquering nations dealt with their subjects. Anybody remember what the Assyrian, the Assyrian hallmark was? Anybody remember that what they did? They'd kill you on Saturday and then twice on Sunday, okay? They didn't play around. They didn't mess with you. They came in. They killed you. And, in fact, they cut off your king's heads and paraded them around to other nations they wanted to intimidate. So you didn't mess with Assyria. It was uh, kind of mob tactics. Okay. The Babylonians were a little gentler. They would gather your people. They would kill your rulers, first of all. And they would gather your people and simply deport them to a different part of the empire. The Assyrian problem was that if, if you know it's death to surrender... Are you going to surrender? No, you're going to die either way, so you may as well fight. The problem with the Babylonian version is now you're always having to put down these rebellions. You know, you pick up a bunch of people from this nation and move them over here. They don't lose their identity, and they start having riots and problems and creating headaches, and they've still got their own customs and languages, and it's, it's a headache to manage. Cyrus, however, had a totally different philosophy. He kept people where they were, 
and kept them at peace so long as they paid taxes and raised an army to fight with him when it was time to fight. Okay? Furthermore, the Jews weren't the only ones. All the people that were dispersed that had been sent to various places, Cyrus, in turn, allowed them to return to their homelands. And if there were other peoples there, he would send these people back, and it was this, Cyrus was simply reshuffling everybody and returning the map to how it looked prior to the Assyrians, giving people back what they wanted. And this would create, of course, loyal subjects who were willing to pay taxes and benefit you. That's why in the book of Nehemiah, do you remember, do you remember what the thread of the book of Nehemiah was? These people are going to build a city and they're going to build a wall and they're going to stop paying taxes. The king's treasury is going to suffer. And that was a big breach of the deal. I'm letting you go back just so you can pay me taxes, right? And so suddenly, God raises up a leader through all these very strange circumstances who happens to be happens to have a totally different foreign policy, and the people of God can return. God predicted that by name and created it and caused it to happen just so he could say he called a shot. God is not an observer of history and reporting back what he has he doesn't look into the future, observe what happens, and then report back. Quite the opposite. God is the one who's causing all of these things to happen just so he can say, I told you this would happen, and your confidence would grow. God is the cause of all of these things, which makes his people not a two-bit player in this world drama, but of central importance to the person who's causing these things to happen. And so, when God says in verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. What do you think the Jewish people thought when Parfar dried up and Cyrus's soldiers came marching in? Do you think they thought of this passage? Well, of course they did. And how many of them do you think said, well, I didn't think it would happen, but I'm happy to eat crow. <laughs> Cyrus. Cyrus was raised up by the Lord. So let's go back a little bit. Now that we've got kind of the history down, we're going to kind of fly through this part just a little bit. Okay, let's go back to the beginning of this section, verse 21, okay? Let's go back to this beginning, verse 21. Uh, God is telling these people, I'm about to send you through a trial. The Babylonians are going to come and pick you up and take you away, but take heart, I've got a redeemer. So what is it that God wants us to do when we're, in the middle, when we're in the middle of a trial. When a trial hits us, how does God want us to think? Well, number one, 
as I've just described, we need to remember that God knows the end of the story and is causing it to happen. How many of you have been in a, a, a situation where it was a trial, the end was uncertain, and then suddenly resolution came, maybe even out of the blue? And all of those things that were bothering you now, now you see that it was a setup so that you could praise God. And you say, I see now, Lord, how you were putting the pieces together. I see it now. I didn't see it before. And that's first and foremost what God wants us to remember, is that he is the author of the situation, He's in control of every circumstance of this trial. He knows the actors. He knows the end, and he's got a purpose, and he's going to fulfill it. And just as surely as he could call his shot 150 years out in front of Cyrus, he knows the end of your story. Okay? He knows the end of your story. Your story may not be written from your perspective, but it's already written in God's book. What else does he want us to remember? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. We have these little rhymes, by the way. When we get to R, I don't have to come up with a rhyme for that one. R is for remembering. Um, what mom and dad might say, always thinking, always hearing, helps me to obey. How many of your kids have said, oh, I forgot? <laughs> no, no, it's not mom and dad's job to remember. It's kids' job to remember. Always thinking, always hearing, helps me to obey. Well, God wants us to remember certain things, okay? He wants us to actively call to mind and remember, think, and hear. When you're in the middle of the trial, he wants you to remember your relationship with him. He wants you to remember your relationship with him. Verse 21, he says right here, you're my servant. I formed you. He says it again, you are my servant. You will not be forgotten. And again, Isaiah is using a contrast here. You may have forgotten me, but I have not forgotten you, and I want you to call to mind and remember that you're my servant. The servant is not in the sense of a, of a, of a slave, but rather a, like a high-ranking military official who, if he went off to do, some to do some ambassadorial work, there's no way the king would forget about him. In fact, to do violence to that person is an act of war against the king. You're a person, you're a servant of high-ranking value to God, and he wants you to remember that. He says here, O Jacob, O Israel, he's using those names back-to-back to to remind us of the transformation that can take place. Jacob was the deceiver, and Israel was the one who prayed in the middle of a trial. He was the one who wrestled with God and overcame. There's a transformation that takes place. And God is saying, I want you to remember that you're my servant, that you're not who you were when I found you. You're my servant, and I've changed you. I've transformed you. We need to remember God's redemption. Okay? It says right here that God has blotted out your transgression like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Now, if I were to say, if I were to say uh, um, blotted out, blotted out. You might, you might have in your mind the picture of uh, what moms do when their children use Sharpie on the walls. 
okay? They go and they get a little magic eraser and they, what do they do? They dab it, wipe it, or if some liquid hits the carpet, you, you blot it. Don't think of it that way. What would you think if a military person said, we're going to wipe them off the face of the map? That's the word. Blotted them out. Obliterated your sins. That, um, and what's a cloud? What's a mist? It's something that looks big and imposing. Look up at the sky and see a big cloud. It looks like it covers many square miles. Is there any substance to it? No. And from God's perspective, he can just obliterate it, wipe it away, send it away. And that's what he's done with our sins. Number three, he says we're to return with a grateful response to God. And we remember our relationship to him. And when you're in the middle of a trial, it hurts, it stings. Remember your relationship with God. Remember how God has blotted out your sins. And then return to the Lord as a grateful response. Do you remember people all the time when they get deliverance from a trial, do you know what they do? Do you know what they do? They forget God as soon as they're healed, as soon as the trial passes, God is gone. Do you remember from, I jotted it down, do you remember Luke chapter 17, verses 12 through 19, there were 10 lepers? How many came back to thank Jesus? One. Jesus said, where's the other nine? I don't know. They forgot. They were healed of their malady, and off they went. God says, listen, when, when you go through a trial and you remember my the relationship that we have, when you remember the sins that have been forgiven, when you remember that I've already written the end of your story, don't go your way in thankless, in a thankless haze. Return to me for worship. Come back to me for praise. Remember where you were and where you are. Return to me with a grateful response. Number four, remember the past work of God. Verse 23, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. Remember, that's his old name. He redeemed him and will be glorified in the new name in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, I formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. And what God is doing is going through there and just recounting his marvelous works in creation and redemption and so forth. And we're to worship the Lord for the work that he's done in the past. And in the case of the people who were reading this for the first time, they're to worship the Lord for what he promises to do in the future. Because remember, right here, God is making some promises about the future. And they're to worship him, trusting that this is going to happen. But I have a question for you. Are there some things going on in your life? Are there some promises God has made you that haven't yet been fulfilled? Are there some things God hasn't yet fulfilled? Well, yeah, of course. But God wants you to look back and see all the things he's done just so you'll have great confidence for the things he's promised to do and will do on your behalf. So we worship God for our relationship. We, wor- we worship God for 
our sins being forgiven, we return to the Lord with grateful praise. And we worship him for what he will do, knowing that he's capable of doing it exactly as he said. If he can predict Cyrus 150 years in advance, and that's kind of nothing for him, what would it mean that he works all things for your good? Okay, what would that mean? How would that change your life if you really believed that? If you really believe that, how would that change your perspective? Let's leave on that thought and we'll get ready for worship. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to worship you. I pray that we would return to you with grateful praise in the coming worship service. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.